morning once again. Oh, it's so helpful. I'm really going to need your help this morning. I mean it. Uh, my head is in a fog, and, and uh, so I'm going to pray in a few minutes, and uh, I'm going to ask you to pray along with me that uh, the Lord, uh, the Holy Spirit will help me uh, deliver something that I, help is, I hope is helpful for you this morning. Um, we are in a series, as you've seen on screen here, for this is the second week now called The Heart of Christmas. This is our theme this year for our Advent series that we do every Christmas, where we want to return to, yeah, the Christmas story, most like, mostly, uh, to remind ourselves about the coming of Christ. And this year, we thought we would look at it from the perspective of the heart of the God, the Father at Christmas. And we looked at that last Sunday, which was interesting. Today, the hope is we'll be looking at the heart of the Son of God, Jesus, at the first Christmas, and uh, before, during, and after. And then next uh, Sunday, we'll be looking at the heart of the Holy Spirit at Christmas. So a little different approach uh, than we normally do. Um, and so there, the, there's a question that I asked last week, and I'll just repeat it this week, is why, why, why do a series like this? Why do we do it every year? We've been doing it for like 12 years, I think, since we planted the Rock Church. And as I mentioned last week, the primary reason is really to counter the narratives that are out there, right? The stories that are going on in December and those narratives are like the, the Hallmark story. Last week, I was thinking about like the cards, right? But, but also there's all the Hallmark movies, amen? Right? I, I forgot about that. And, and then, uh, you know, then there's also the Disney and the Disney Plus, right? But there's also the... Um, you know, the, the, the guy in the red suit, that's the Coca-Cola story. Remember that? They actually started that. Why? Because their color is what? Somebody help me here. Red. Right. So that whole story. So it's the counter to that. Now, are all those narratives, all those stories, like, wrong? Um, well, are they this story? No. Uh, they're not this story. And, and in most cases, not even remotely close. So that's the reason why we're doing this. We like to go through the Christmas story and, and look back on it is just to, is to remind us as the church, but also anyone who might be watching online and good morning to you as well, or who might stumble in here on a Sunday morning, uh, about the best story ever, which is the true story of the Son of God coming into this world as Jesus Christ. So as our theme, as I said, is um, uh, the heart of Christmas. And today my hope is that we will uh, look at it from the perspective of uh, the heart of the Son of God on that day. This should be interesting. Now, normally, you know that I, I have a text. We have a, last week, it was 18 verses, right? It took us, what, two and a half hours to get through? No. But, you know, and so we unpacked that one. I don't have one specific today. Um, we have a number that we're going to go through, and so we'll do it that way. So, on that note, let me pray before we begin one more time and look at this wonderful subject of the heart of the Son of God at Christmas. Gracious Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you. Lord, Lord, we thank you that we get to gather here. We get to. Um, we get to get up in the morning on a Sunday, the first day of the week, and, and come to gather with a number of other men and women who want, who want to worship you, who want to know you more deeply. And yeah, yeah we want to be together too as your family. Um, and, and we want to sing songs, and we want to have fellowship, and we want to have coffee and talk. And, but Lord, more than anything, we come here because we, we, we want to know you. We want to experience you in our own personal lives, but also corporately as a church. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just do a mighty work today. You know my weakness today, uh, on any given Sunday for that matter, but especially today. So I pray that you would just take the words that you've given to me this week and uh, from the text that we're going to look at, and that you would just bless them, and you would anoint them, and you would do something good with them. 
as you normally do. So I pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your worthy name. Amen. So last week, uh, as we considered the heart of God the Father at Christmas, our primary text, as I mentioned just a second ago, was the Gospel of John, verses 1 to 18. Uh, the opening few verses are called, uh, and again, a repeat from last week, the prologos or the prologue, and they're actually verses that relate to a time before the foundation of the cosmos, before the world. And, and so we looked at that last week because what we wanted to understand is, is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existed, have existed from all eternity. They, they didn't become those names, those titles, at the birth of Christ. And that's remarkable. And the more I think about it, I don't know about the rest of you, the more I think about that, it, it kind of it expands my mind a little bit, and I find it remarkable that God, our God, the triune God, has identified himself from all of eternity today and for all of eternity going forward as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so it's remarkable. And it's before the foundation of the world. The first two verses, which will be on screen for you, I repeat for you today, are these words, John the the Apostle writing, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so we know from verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that this Word here, this Logos, is Jesus. It's the Lord Jesus. And so from there, we already see that from before the foundation of the world, the Father and the Son, at least, were together. And so I wanted to return to this idea today and frankly place in history this morning for this reason. As we begin to read scripture, and frankly, even attempt to imagine, imagine the heart of the Son of God, of Jesus at the first Christmas, we need to go back. And again, the question is why? Well, it's rather difficult to know or even imagine what Jesus' heart was at his birthday. (laughs) On the day that he was, it's a little hard, isn't it? I mean, I want to go there a little bit with you this morning. Might seem a little strange and weird, but, you know, I want to go there with you just to think about it. And imagine a little bit, because our Bibles don't tell us a lot about his. So what was his heart at his birth, at his incarnation? I mean, after all, he descended from his place in heaven. He was with God and the Holy Spirit before all of this took place. Millions, billions of years before all this took place. And all of a sudden, he's conceived in his mother Mary's womb. And so, yes, he is for nine months a fetus, right? And, And he's in the womb. He's left behind his place in glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And now, my first question is, is he conscious? Is he conscious, right? Is he looking around in the womb and thinking, Father, Spirit, man, (laughs) what we conceived, this, this is amazing. This is an amazing thing. Well, I know it sounds silly, but I want you to think about that. I want us to think about where he was, what was going on, because... The scripture doesn't say anything about that specifically, and yet we do learn certain things about it. And so this is before the foundation world, and, and, and at that point in time, here, this is the amazing thing also to me. And what about when he was with the Father and the Spirit way before the conception, before he's in Mary's womb, and, and they, the, before the foundation of the world, and they conceived this idea of creation itself, and of course us, and they knew that, well, they knew that um, since their we are not God. <laughs> they are. God the Father, God the Son, the God the Holy Spirit are God, since they knew that. But, but that we are image bearers who are like God, well, maybe at some point we might, given the opportunity, likely believe a lie 
And that lie being that we can be just like God. That we could be just like God. Now, you know the Adam and Eve story. That's exactly what happened, right? That's exactly what happened. And so, again, before the foundation of the world, Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit are having this conversation, this plan to go, okay, what will we, what will we do? What are we going to do about that? Because we, we know, we know that that is likely what's going to happen. So once they worked out the details, the plans, and they had this conversation, what do you think? Once they worked out the details and what would be the only basis upon which they could forgive our rebellion, our sin, was to provide a perfect sacrifice. A sacrifice which, if it was going to be perfect, could not be fully human, would therefore have to be God in the flesh. And so I wonder back at the time, because, again, I'm kind of silly, but I'm wondering, did Jesus say, pick me? <laughs> pick me to be the one to go. We, again, we don't know things like that. But I, I put that out there as things that we might imagine, because as we look at what actually happened, it's interesting that Jesus was the one to come. Well, the truth is, as I said, we do not have an answer from Scripture uh, about some of my imaginary thoughts this morning. All that said, God having, listen, perfect foreknowledge, Jesus would have known full well what he was signing up for, right? He knew full well what he was signing up for before the foundation of the world. And yet he still chose to come. So one thing we learn right away is his heart from before the foundation of the world was to be our savior. That was his heart. I find that amazing. So you might remember the Apostle Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit has come upon Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times, and he preaches this amazing sermon, a sermon that bursts the church. Three to 5,000 people come to faith in Christ on that day. Near the end of that sermon, he says these words. These won't be on screen just yet. But he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as yourselves know. And then he says, and this will be on screen for you, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There are many instances in the Gospels and in the New Testament that show this to us. Clear evidence that God knew beforehand, that Jesus knew beforehand what he was signing up for. To die. And yet, he still came. And he still came as a, as a child in the womb of a, some say, 13 to 14-year-old Jewish young lady, woman. So today it is my hope to highlight three ways for us that the heart of the Son of God at Christmas is on display. There there are many, actually, so many, but I'm going to highlight three, I hope. First, they are his humility, his heart of humility at Christmas. Secondly, his compassion. And thirdly, his revelation. So number one, humility. Um, I have a lot of favorite Bible verses, but there's one that has been really my favorite of all time because I just remember the first time I read it and it's John 3.16 is awesome. Everybody knows that. 
you know, it gets repeated all the time, and it will at Christmas Eve. Trust me, be here. This one, when I first read it, I was like, wow. This is at the point where Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to die. I think this is the third time he's done this now. And then he's going to rise again on the third day. And, and oh, by the way, I'm going to send you a helper, and his, his name is the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and he's, he's, he's trying to impart to them that it's okay. I'm going to die for you, but, you know, I'll send you the Spirit. And then he says these words in John 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He goes on to say, I don't call you servants anymore. And he's talking to his disciples. I'm calling you my friends. Now, again, I, I was raised Roman Catholic, and, and some people maybe here have are been from another religious background. And, but my, my impression of God was, was not necessarily that he was my friend. <laughs> like... <clears throat> You know, it, there, he, was, he was God, and, and if, if I messed up, whew, I had to go to confession for starters because if I didn't and I got hit by a bus, well, what would happen when I die? Well, I wouldn't be forgiven anymore. And it was just, just this fear, like a, a based attitude towards God. And yet when Jesus, when I heard these words, I was like, wow. So clearly what we see here is Jesus loved his disciples very, very much. And these words, as I've said, are part of a lengthy passage where he's preparing them for his death, calling them to the great commandment, which is that they love one another in the same way as he loved them. And he says these words, calling them to follow in his footsteps as he dies. Now, I want you to couple those words, because those are, those, are, those are perfectly wonderful, beautiful words about Christ and his heart. But let's couple that with what Paul has to say in Romans 5 verses 7 and 8, where he says this, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Paul's trying to explain this here. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Makes sense so far, right? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So returning to the reality that at one time Jesus had it all, had it all, the question has to, be, has to be, why would he be willing to give it all up? <laughs> Glory, peace, we, the candle lighting for today, the readings for today, peace with God the Father. Why do I need that? And listen, not just for his friends, but look in this text, for his enemies. Think about it. Let's think about that. What would you do? Imagine you have all the wealth you would ever need. Like more than Elon Musk, okay? No, seriously. All the money, all the wealth that you would ever need. Billions of dollars. Imagine you had that, right? Add to that you're young, you're vital, you're in very good health, and every day is up and to the right. And quite frankly, dying hasn't dawned on you yet. You're invincible. Some people think that way, right? Well, here's an interesting thought. Imagine you're faced with an ask by your father. And your father, whom you've derived much of your wealth from, (laughs) it's like an inheritance, right? You've derived it from him, whom you love and who loves you, asks you, listen, I know this is tough, but listen, asks you to go to Gaza and protect the people there, all of them, who are dying 
Oh, and one more thing. You're Jewish. I know that's very current, but friends, over 2,000 years ago, that was current for Jesus Christ. It's current for him. And so, yeah, that is why when I consider John 15, and I've considered it many times, and having that greater love, you know, I, I have to be honest with you. Uh, you know, the question is, would I take a bullet for my wife? Well, I'm a man. Yeah, I, I, I would. I would. Do I want to? <laughs> yes, I would. <laughs> no, honestly, think about it. Think about it. What, what Paul is getting across and what Jesus signed up for, okay? I mean, we, we thankfully have people who will go to war to protect peace and, and, and our country. We, we have peace officers, RCMP, uh, Vancouver City Police. We have people who will put their lives on the line every day at the risk of losing their lives for who? For you and for me, for our safety, for people who are our friends most likely. But then I just have to ask myself this question, what about, what, are the, what about those people who hate me, who don't really love me and like me? This is humility. <laughs> this is the humility of Christ. This is his heart at Christmas. Jesus humbled himself as God, to come to this earth as a child, yes, in Bethlehem, yes, in a manger, yes. It's a beautiful scene. It is. We should remember it. We do remember it. And we will remember it more in the days ahead. Of course he came that way, to live in, a, in obscurity as well for 30 years. Amongst pe- Nobody knew him real well. People in Nazareth knew him. 30 years. He's the son of God. <laughs> and he's in obscurity. And then while slowly coming to the realization as he grew what he knew before leaving the Father's side, he humbled himself. Paul again tells us in Philippians chapter 2 these words, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You know, I, at one time in my life, and I'm not puffing myself up, but, you know, I had titles like president, right? President, right? And, you know, at, at any given time, if you'd said to me, um, and some people would want me to do that, you need to give that up. You know, no. No, I, I, it's not that I was overly prideful, but, you know, I worked hard to, to be that. I started the company or whatever it might be. We can have that kind of attitude. The, Jesus was fully equal, is today, fully, always was, fully equal with God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are fully equal. And yet they demonstrate submission to one another and that they have roles. And Jesus is... Dis, is this is another example of his unbelievable humility. So Jesus was, as I said, and is today fully equal to the Father, but he laid it down. And how did he do that? Paul goes on. But he emptied himself. Again, in these verses, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, there's the words, he humbled himself. Next uh, passage, please. Uh, There we go. (laughs) 
just wanted to make sure you see that. He humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this word emptied, previous to emptied himself, is, is the Greek word that we get the word kenosis from. And it's a fascinating Greek word. It can be translated, as you see in the ESV translation, as emptied. Emptied himself. But another translation would be rendered void. It's like a check, canceled, right? Rendered void. So what does that mean? Well, we must be careful lest we join those who back in the day uh, professed and promoted a heresy, and that was that Jesus actually gave up his divinity. No. Not at any point in time. Not at his incarnation and not at that moment on the cross where he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, the synapse was very thin at that point. But at no point was Jesus not God. So nothing of that nature, of course, is suggested here or anywhere else in the Bible. There are many passages also in the Gospels, for example, where Jesus literally displayed his divine nature. Like, to a storm on the sea, be calm. Instantly. Didn't just quiet down. It was instantly calm. Raised a few people from the dead. That's divine. Fed 5,000 people sushi and bread, right? That's divinity on display. Bestowed upon him at the time when he needed it in that way by the Holy Spirit. So what did Jesus actually empty himself of then? Well, scholars will tell you, it's best to understand Christ's emptying of himself and, and rendering void is also helpful for her as a laying aside of his privileges as the Son of God. As God. Rather than remain on his throne in heaven, Jesus made himself, as the NIV translates this, nothing. Nothing. This is the God we worship. This is the God we sing praises to. He chose to occupy the position of a servant, which is a slave, and in obedience to his father's will, he gave his life for all, even his enemies. This is the ultimate humility. So one thing that we could miss if we were to focus too much on what Jesus gave up, although that is something we cannot minimize, would be to miss out on what he actually took on. It's awesome. Jesus added to his divine nature a Human nature. I, I think that's awesome, but it's, it's less than a divine nature, let's be honest. But he took it on as he humbled himself, and he did that by doing what? By identifying with us. This is another one of these things about the, the heart of God the Son at Christmas that we're looking at. It's part of this, but it's part of humility I'm giving to you this morning, is that he decided to identify with us. And that's why John 1.14, when it says... The word became flesh and dwelt among us. What, it, what does it tell us? It tells us that God wanted to be with us. He wants to be with us. That's obviously meaningful. But here we also understand that he in Christ can say like no one else can. I really do, as your God and Savior, identify with everything that you as a human being go through. Amen? You look at his life, what he endured, man, I'm not going to complain anymore today that I've had a cold all week. He identifies. 
He knows our joys. Sure he does. He went to weddings and made the best wine when the lesser wine ran out. But he also identifies with our sorrows, our sufferings. And that is, at Christmas, his heart of the second thing we're going to look at, compassion. The word compassion is, uh, in reality, in the life of Christ, speaks so clearly to the heart of the Son of God. The Father and the Spirit, too, at Christmas. When they collectively knew, via their divine foreknowledge, that we would fall, that we would rebel, that we would sin against them, their heart was not wrath. It wasn't wrath against us. Wrath against evil and sin, yes. And also not anger or revenge. Again, that, my previous understandings of a God was that, you know, if I really mess up, you know, lightning bolt could happen. It's not our God. Instead, what we read in the scripture and we read in the story of the heart of Jesus at Christmas, the heart of God, the Father and the Holy Spirit as well, is a deep, heartfelt compassion. <laughs> it's the only thing that it can explain the humility and, and the actions that God took is his compassion. So one very familiar passage where we read about the compassion of Jesus is in Matthew 9, 36. You all know these words. He's walking through the city of Jerusalem, and, he's, and we read the words, when he saw the crowds, at one point we hear that he wept over the city. But here we read he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So when Jesus is walking into the city, he sees the crowd and his first thoughts aren't, oh man, look how messed up these people are. You know, last week, Janice and I were out for lunch in Vancouver with uh, Pat and Kevin, and we, you know, we were right there in the heart of Chinatown, in the heart of, yeah, the downtown east side. It's heartbreaking to walk past an alley and see people just overdosing on drugs and sick. I worked for Union Gospel Mission many years ago for three and a half years, and so I worked down there. And I can just tell you today, it's way worse. It's cataclysmic. It really is. And so but you could walk by that and you could go, you know, just getting what they deserve, these people, you know. Some people feel that way, you know. I may have felt that way before. I don't know about you, well, they brought that on themselves, right? But God doesn't do that. In his compassion, he doesn't look at us and go, oh, they're so messed up. No. You and I might do that. We might judge a book by its cover. What, just me? <laughs> Not God. Jesus looks and his first emotion is compassion. And why? Well, because they're being harassed and they're helpless. And by whom? Well, some people today might say, well, by other people, by, by you know, drug dealers, and oh, by the government. The government's not doing enough to help them. What about you? Okay, just hang on. Well, no, I think in, in, in Christ's economy and in his mind, he's, he knows why they're harassed and helpless. And it's for two reasons. Because there is literally a devil. Satan and his minions, and I've said this before, their plan A is that everyone on this planet will die without Jesus Christ. 
They're being harassed and they're helpless. Why? Because they don't have a good shepherd. They don't have anyone acting like a good shepherd, really. Well, there are a few laborers at Union Gospel Mission and other missions, but not enough, not enough to help with this. And so first, there's the devil, as I mentioned, his minions. Secondly, there's no good shepherd to care for them, to watch over them and bring them back to their home, right? To paraphrase something, uh, my favorite preacher of all time, Tim Keller once said, he said this, Jesus didn't come to tell us what we need to do to make our way back to God. He didn't come to do that. Other religions actually lay it out that way. Here's what you got to do in order for God to accept you and, and for you to stay in his good graces. You need to do these things to work yourself up to his approval and his acceptance. Jesus did not come to tell us what we need to do to make our way to God. He came to show us the way back home. And, back home to the Father, I should say, and to take us there himself. That's a huge difference. And so it's interesting what Jesus says next, isn't it? In verses 37 and 38, he says, then he said to his disciples, right after that, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. How many of you recognize that text from another gospel? If you're a rockster, you should, because many of us have our phones set every day at 10.02 to pray what? Luke 10.2. Same words. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Send out more laborers. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. You know what I figured out about those verses? That verse, that prayer, if you pray that prayer, you know what you figure out after you pray it a few times? Uh-oh. I'm supposed to be that, that laborer. This is not me praying for some other people to come here into Squamish and do the work of ministry. <laughs> it's the Lord helping me to pray and see that I'm the one to be doing that. And so immediately after Matthew tells us that Jesus had compassion for those who are harassed and helpless because they're without a shepherd, Jesus says, here's what you should do, guys and gals. You should look around in the days that follow and know this. Because my life, death, burial, and resurrection... Because of that, there is now a harvest, a plentiful one that the Lord has prepared. But look, the laborers are few. They're going to be few. Well, without going into much detail, I suggest that Jesus is suggesting that you and I, when we look around and we see the brokenness, the misery that we see, all of which is because men and women today are harassed and helpless, we should show and act on our compassion. We should. Preaching to the preacher here. Okay. Just so you know. So friends, Jesus was sent by the Father to show his compassion for the lost and dying world. And now he is sending us, Jesus is sending us to do the same thing in the power of the Holy Spirit. I can't do this. I can't love you the way I'm supposed to without the Holy Spirit's help. I certainly can't love and show compassion to my enemies without that help. Point number three today, revelation. Throughout the Gospels, we read about Jesus coming to reveal the Father. He says it all the time. He's revealing the Father. He's, he's coming to preach about the kingdom of God. And he's come to preach and reveal God to us. Our mission as the Rock Church is to make who known? Come on. To make Jesus known. Yes, you're still awake. 
This is awesome. Well, it's true. Jesus' mission was to make the Father known. That was his mission, to make the Father known. So as we began today, we recognize that there's little that we actually know about Jesus' conscious knowledge of who he was and why he came at his incarnation and, quite frankly, about his early life. We can learn from that that Jesus truly placed his trust and faith in those days and in those moments fully on his heavenly Father and on the Holy Spirit fully trusted them in those days. It's beautiful. We do, however, learn of, about a couple of events when that knowledge was being revealed. There's a story in the scripture that uh, talks about Jesus growing in his wisdom, but there's also this story uh, when he was 12 years of age, he traveled to Jerusalem with his parents as they did every year for the Passover. And on this occasion, when they, when they decided to leave Jerusalem and on their way home, they're a day's journey away from Jerusalem, right? And they're with their aunts and uncles and the whole family. And it's, a, it's like, a, a, you know, like a cavalcade. They're, they're on this mission going home. And all of a sudden, they look around and go, where's Jesus? Right? He's 12. And, and they can't find him. And so, oh, well, we better go back to Jerusalem. So they go back to Jerusalem, and they're looking for Jesus for three days. Right? Okay. I remember losing our eldest son, Andrew, at a mall um, when he was, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten years of age for five minutes. <clears throat> I thought I was going to have a heart attack. Boy, don't I give him a word when I saw him, I'm telling you. <laughs> so they found him holding court in the temple with the religious leaders, and we read in Luke chapter 2, verses 47 and 48. And all who heard him, 12 years old, were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Mm-hmm. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Four days now. Oh, yes. Well, Jesus replies in verse 49 and says, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So what we do know from the scripture is at 12 years of age, he knows who he is. He knows why he's here. That much has been revealed back to him. It's really, really wonderful. And so he's growing in wisdom and aware of who he is. The next event I want to share with you as we close this morning is when Jesus is now 30 years of age. And he's just started his earthly ministry. Uh, he's been baptized by the John, uh, John the Baptist. He, he's gone into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and been tempted by the devil and whipped that guy good. Right? And then he's going to head home to his uh, hometown, hometown boy. He's going to go home to his synagogue that he grew up in. And uh, it's going to be interesting how he's received. These verses in chapter 4 won't be on screen to begin with, but it begins with this, Luke writing and telling us the narrative and story. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, oh, that's just by accident, right? Was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Verses 18 and 19 will be on screen. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke continues, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. All the eyes of those in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Oh, they loved his sermon, didn't they? Do you all remember the story? Well, at first they're going, oh, yeah, this is awesome. And then a few people go, hold on. Isn't this Joseph's son? Carpenter? Right? You know how the story ends near the end, right? They want to kill him. He gets away. He does. The amazing thing is, and what I leave you with this morning, is this prophecy was written by Isaiah, and they are the words of Christ. And they were written 700 years before his birth. 700 years before his birth, he is saying these words through the prophet Isaiah that he quotes on this day. He's making it known. And knowing all of that in advance, yes, he still What? Chose to come. This prophetic word, by the word himself, shows us the heart of his mission. Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, does that mean people who are literally, financially, figuratively poor? Yes. But the Beatitudes tell us it's also to those who are poor in spirit. Right? Those who recognize that they've got nothing. They've got nothing to offer God. They've become that poor, excuse me. I figured that might happen once. Thank you, Lord. In spirit. I love this part too. To set the captives free. Friends, you and I are the captives. We're the captives. We've been held captive, and everyone in this world has been held captive by sin. To open our eyes to the truth. This is why Jesus came. This is the revelation that he came to bring us the truth of who God is and what he has done in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ. This is the revelation and is the heart of the Son of God at Christmas. So in his earthly ministry, Jesus taught profound truths about God's kingdom, love, forgiveness, and the way of salvation. We all know that. The incarnation serves as a revelation of God's character and his purposes allowing humanity, you and I, men and women, to see and understand God more intimately. And that's the point of what I hope we're doing in these three weeks of our Advent series. So friends, I want to suggest or hope today that this Christmas story inspires you and and I to humbly walk with our God, to display and offer compassion to those who are harassed and helpless, and to boldly proclaim the revelation of Jesus Christ in this lost and dying world today. to to proclaim it boldly. This is the meaning of Christmas. This is why we're doing the Advent series. And this is why we encourage you this Christmas to tell your neighbors and your friends who don't know Jesus, to invite them to the Christmas Eve service. This is the heart of the Son of God. Pray with me, would you? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you 
I thank you so much. Uh, Lord, your, your word is vast. Uh, this week as I've, well, for the last couple of weeks, I've been trying to parse this out, what to, what to say about the heart of the Son of God. It's just so much. There's so much to say. There's so much unsaid. And so, Lord, I just thank you that your word is so, so full. Lord, I pray, and I pray for my, my friends here, my brothers and sisters here today with, with me this morning and those watching online. I pray that we would just, through this Christmas season, we would just dig deep into the well, which is you, which is found in your word, that you might encourage us once again that, yeah, everything else about Christmas, giving gifts and, and Christmas morning and all that, it's all wonderful, it's beautiful. But Lord Jesus, without you, it's meaningless. And so Lord, I pray that we would all reflect on that and then enjoy all of these, these other stories. So Father, I pray that you would just bless us today as we go to communion now. And I just pray these things in your worthy name, Jesus.